Nice sword covering you have here, brother. Yeah. Dad, did you pass out all of the... Does that, who doesn't have a, a verse sheet for your notes? And Are you good here? Can we hear? I turned it on, so... Well, good morning. What an awesome day. The last couple days have just been, last couple weeks have just been beautiful. The wind hasn't been blowing. It's just been a good breeze. Goodness. Um, last week I spoke on something, uh, and I mentioned something several times throughout the message, and it was the, the term kingdom eyes and kingdom heart. And I said it several times, and I thought later on I, I should have, you know, kind of explained my understanding of what a kingdom heart is, and I didn't do a good job of that last week, so I wanted to take a second or a minute and just explain to you what I believe, uh, in my mind, a, what a kingdom heart is, because I, I think God is telling us through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, through the teachings, that we are, t- you know, the goal is for us to have a kingdom heart, we're supposed to see the world through kingdom eyes, and this idea of a kingdom heart, in my mind, is just focusing and reacting, and training, and teaching ourselves daily to live and walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And so everything that we see, um, our natural reactions that we have when somebody cuts us off, when we read something that frustrates us, is to transform our minds and to look at them from the the lens of the kingdom. And the, the word kingdom is made up of two words, king and domain. So in this reference, obviously God, Jesus, is our king, and the domain is the world in which we live in. And I find it interesting, I say the world in which we live in as Christians, I find it interesting that in Matthew, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This reference to the kingdom, the king's domain, is basically the Sermon on the Mount, and I think what he's telling us is, that Jesus is the king and we are subjects in his kingdom, in his domain. And we are his representatives and every day, every one of us have an opportunity to become or be the light, the salt, and the representatives and the ambassadors of Jesus. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you know, as we continue to, is this getting boring? Do we need to like change subjects and go to, you know, numbers and look at the different, you guys, we... We look at the Israelites and look at all that. The, you don't know we're good? Okay. So we'll continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount and look at it from a kingdom view, uh, a kingdom heart, a kingdom vision. And we're on this subject uh, that, at least, by the way, thank you for this. This is the day that the Lord hath made. Lisa made, made this here, and she made several of them. Are you, are you giving them to anybody? Or yeah, I didn't mean to give away your stuff, but okay. So, um, see Lisa afterwards, and uh, you, got, you guys want a bookmark. Uh, we're going to go over a passage in the scriptures that I think is difficult for some, uh, if not all, at some point in their walk, and it's in Matthew chapter 5, and starting in verse 43. You have your notes, make notes on there if you want, but it says, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? But do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the text that we're going to go over today. The, the, the last verse, you, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Kingdom eyes, kingdom heart. I'm going to start at the beginning in verse 43 when he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
I couldn't find where it was said. I couldn't find in the, in the Old Testament that Jesus is referencing in earlier areas of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. We can see in the Old Testament where it says, thou shalt not murder, and it gives some ramifications for those that, that disobey that law of God. But I couldn't find anywhere where it says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So I did some research on it, and I believe that what he is referring there is, um, it's an inference. It's an inference that the Jews had come to believe that they were commanded in Leviticus 19. Go to Leviticus 19. In Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18. This is the law given by God through Moses to the Israelites. And in Leviticus 19, verse 17 and 18, it says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. In fact, it says the opposite. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So I read that. I'm like, how did the Jews infer or believe that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy? And I begin to think about all the stories in the Old Testament and all of the, 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 the examples that we have of the Jewish people looking at the Gentiles, looking at the pagans, looking at the non-Jewish people as someone that God had said, wipe them out. Look, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 through 18 says, However, you must not let any living thing survive among the cities of these people the Lord your God has given you as an inheritance. You must completely destroy them, the Hethite, Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, and Jebusite. 1 Samuel 15, now go and attack the Amalekites and completely destroy everything they have. Do not spare them. Kill men and women, infants and nursing babies, oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. We see in the Old Testament the story of David and Goliath. And David, go to that story because I think there's a couple things in there that I think are very, uh, they're fun to look at. 1 Samuel chapter 17, we have the story of David and Goliath and David is, is called to go, and his dad says, go take him some food. So he goes, and he takes him some food, and he walks up, and, and this, this uh, Goliath is coming up on this hill, and I think it's for 40 days. If I'm going off memory, for 40 days, he goes up on this hill, and he challenges the Israelite army, and then they would run in fear. They would see him, and it was, no, actually, it was 80 times because it was morning and night, if I, if I remember right. Morning and night, the Goliath would go up on this hill, challenge the nation of Israel, and they would flee in fear because he's such a big man. And so David, this little shepherd boy, he comes up in verse 17 and 18. This is what he, or I'm sorry, 1 Samuel uh, 20, 17, 25 and 26, starting verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man talking about Goliath who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. What a bonus if you could just kill Goliath. No taxes, and you get to marry the king's daughter, and your clan is free. So you think, yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it a shot. And David stood to the, uh, said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This uncircumcised Philistine, this Gentile. So there's this picture that's given throughout the Old Testament that you have the Jewish people, the chosen people of God, the Israelites, and then you have everyone else. And God promises Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, and it's free. It's going to be given to you. And they've got this promise from God, and he says, I want you to get rid of all of the evil that is out there in the other nations. The Hizzites, the Parasites, the Jebutites, the all that, get rid of them. 
And we see it in Joshua chapter 5 through 7, which is probably three of the greatest chapters in my mind in the Bible. I mean, they're just, when you study Joshua 5 through 7, and starting back at chapter 4, really, and trying to give you a picture, it's this beautiful, physical picture of the nation of Israel that had been led for 40 years wandering in the wilderness, and they get to the Jordan River, and they're getting ready to cross the Jordan River, so they, they go from the east side of the Jordan to the west side of the Jordan. They cross through the waters. God separates the waters enough for them to get by, to go all through on dry ground. They go across the river. They get on the other side, and in Joshua chapter 5, it says that they were circumcised at Gilgal. And so when we look at Joshua 5, 6, and 7, I'm, I'm explaining a picture that we see about how the Jews would have felt about the Gentiles, or they would have felt about everybody that was not a Jew. You can understand why Jesus says, you have heard they would have said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy, because that is the picture that God has placed through the stories that we have in the Old Testament. So in Joshua chapter 5, the new generation of people that come across the river, they're circumcised after they go through the Jordan River, which is a whole other sermon. We've preached on that before, and we will again. And then they celebrate the first Passover that they've celebrated in 40 years. And then the commander, this is a, remember, I, this, is my, uh, this is my quick segue. Remember I told you that there are things in the Bible that when you read them, they don't belong there? They don't see, they're like, they're, they're just kind of like, there's the story and there's the narrative and you go through the story and then there's this blip. And then something is taught and then it's back to the storyline. Well, I feel like this is part of that. There's something in here in Joshua chapter 5. Now, it's in the story, and they're in the location. It's not like they were taken to some other place. But I just find it interesting here. When Joshua, in verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Okay, physical example. I want you to think about spiritually real quick. Is God for this church or that church? Is God for this family or that family? Is God for this country or that country? Is God for this religion or that religion? The answer that he is given here to me, explains the reverence we are to have for God and how much higher and bigger He is than our little minds. He says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And this man standing before him said, no. Are you for us? No. Are you for them? No. I and the commander of the army of the Lord. I know this may be, in some people's minds, stretching it, but here's what I hear from the physical to the spiritual. God, are you on my side? Are you on his side? Are you on her side? No, I'm on God's side. This is what matters. This is what matters. The word of God and God is what matters. It doesn't matter this group or that group, what matters is what does God say? And that's when this commander says, no, I am for the army of the Lord. And then Joshua fell on his face, and then the, the fall of Jericho, they say, I want you to go to Jericho, and I want you to march around it, and they get the trumpets, on the seventh day you're going to blow the trumpets. So there's all this story in Joshua 5, 6, and 7 is how they're going to defeat Jericho and then take on all of these other towns and armies as they go along and defeat them completely. And in Joshua chapter Oh, where is it? 20. In Joshua 6, 20, he says, So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. They destroyed the Gentiles. 
They were not to interbreed with them. They were not to intermarry. They were not to even take the devoted things. And this is what happened to the family of Ai. They were defeated at Ai. And Achan, one of the members of the army of Israel, hid some things and kept them. And as a result of him keeping and defying God and keeping some of the Gentile uh, uh, spoils of war, his entire family got wiped out by his own people. That's how much God hated the Gentiles and what they represented. Now what's physical is spiritual. I believe what God is saying is that when you cross from death to life, gouge out the eye, cut off the hand, and remove it from your life. Remove it. Get it out. Have nothing to do with it. What's physical is spiritual. The physical stories in the Old Testament, there's a spiritual application in the New Testament. And he says to us, as an example, that we are to rid ourselves in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So he writes to the Christian people, to the church at Ephesus, to remove, let the bitterness and the wrath and the anger and the clamor and the slander be put away along with all malice. And so when he's telling us, you have heard that but said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, I can understand why they inferred that from the command in Leviticus 19 because it says neighbor and brother. It doesn't say Gentile, pagan, sojourner. It talks about those in your own clan. And so Jesus is coming saying, hey, you have heard that it was said this, not through the writings of the Old Testament, but probably through the scribes that had taught and had explained some things, as this is how we are to live. So for the sake of the sermon this morning, I want to fully understand what Jesus is calling his disciples to. And in order to do that, I think we need to look at the words that are used and understand what is neighbor, what is enemy, what is hate, what is love. Because when he says, you have heard that it was said you must you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say, love your enemies who are enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. What does it mean to love? What is a neighbor? And what does it mean to hate? So the word neighbor in the Hebrew, in the one used in excuse me, Leviticus 19, it simply means an associate, a brother, a close friend, a companion. In the Greek, it means the same thing. Someone close to you, a neighbor, a fellow, a neighbor fellow, or a countryman. So that is what a neighbor is when Jesus says, you have heard what is said, um, you shall love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So a neighbor is someone that is a brother or a close friend or companion. And um, an enemy in the Greek is hateful, hostile, adversary, enemy, foe. Who here has an enemy out there? You all do. A foe. An adversary. And I'm not talking just a big spiritual adversary. I mean, I have an adversary every day I go to work. I have an adversary every single time I step foot on a job site or every single time I go into the building department or I deal with the state of Colorado, I feel like I have an adversary. They're there to make life harder for you. They're not there to help you. They're a foe. Hey, I really need help with this. Well, I don't think we can help. Wait, I pay you to help. My tax dollars pay for you to do this so that all these other people can do their job and they can eat and feed their families. Yeah, I just, I, I, don't, I don't think we have time for that. Oh, I'm going to have to preach on repentance. I may just stop this sermon altogether. Enemy, hateful, hostile, adversary, foe. The word hate, hate can have two meanings. It can mean like, to detest, to de- I, like hate, I detest that person, but it could also mean to love less. And in Luke chapter 24, as an example, I want you to read Luke because Jesus is not telling us to detest our family members. In Luke chapter, four, uh, Luke chapter 14, verse 26 
Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them, and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So there are two words for that word hate. One is maseo, and it means to love less. Jesus is not saying to detest your children or detest your wife or your husband or your parents. He's saying you must love them less than me. That's what Jesus is saying in, in Luke 14. But in this case, when he says love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and hate your enemy or don't hate your enemy, you've heard that it was said, that word hate there is to detest your enemy. I love my neighbor, but I detest my enemy. And then the word love here is interesting because there are four Greek words for love. The first one is storge. That's not the one used here, but for the sermon understanding of it, storge is like a familial love, like a, a family love. It's a love that a father has for a son, a mother has for a daughter, a father has for a daughter, and so on and so forth. And a child, says Plato, loves and is loved by those who brought him into this world. Sweet is a father to his children, says Philemon, if he has love, storge. These, this word, storge, describes like the family affection that you all have for your children or your parents or your grandparents. And then the next Greek word that it's, that's talked about or that there is in, in, uh, in the Greek for love is eros. And that is a, um, that's the love that a man would have for his, his bride on their wedding night. Uh, it's a passionate love. Um, it's, there's always a sexual love to it. Um, Sophocles, I think that's how you pronounce his name, described Eros as a terrible longing. Like I physically long for her. And these words... There's nothing bad, but they just describe the, the passion of the human love, the passion love of, of humanity. And um, over time, as this word is being used, it's kind of gone into this idea of lust rather than love. And it's not used in the New Testament, but I wanted to uh, share that because these are the four words that are used for love. The third one is philia. Now, anybody's driven back east and they've gone, you know, the city of our... Come on, take the easy ones. The city of Philadelphia. The city of brotherly love is Philadelphia. Philadelphia. And philuntes uh, is the present participle, and it's a word that describes a man's closest and nearest and truest friends. Um, it can, it's, it's this warm, tender affection. It's, a, it's one of the highest forms of love. It's like we're just, we're, we're like, we're brothers. You know, we're like brothers. I love my brother. I love my brother. That's just the, this affection that we have, philia. And then the word that Jesus, is, Jesus uses in this particular scenario here is agape. Bless you. Is agape. And agape um, is this unconquerable benevolence. It's, uh, it's, this in, it's this invincible goodwill for our fellow man, or for anybody, rather, our fellow human being. And if we regard a person with agape, it, it doesn't matter what the person does, who the person is, how they treat us, how they insult us, how they injure us, how they grieve us, we will not allow any bitterness to come in between us and them. So simple. It's so easy, guys. You just got to do it. That's the, like, that's the beauty of this passage and its beauty of, of true Christianity is it's so challenging. The people that are just like the, the one hour a week Christian that check the box, I've done my job, when they really study the teachings of Jesus and when he says, agape those who persecute you. Don't have bitterness for those who persecute you. Don't harbor anger or vengeance for those who insult you or grieve you. He's saying, love those people. And not only love those people, but pray for those people. That is a very difficult teaching. It is, it is a teaching that is not a feeling of the heart. It's not something where like, I just feel... No, it's something that, 
It's just, it, it's a determination of our mind is what it is. This agape love that Jesus calls his followers to and he says, I say, love your persecutors. Love those who persist after you to do you harm. Agape them. It's not something that we can just hear in our heart. It's something that in our minds we, we just we focus on and that we have this goodwill towards these people that injure us. And when we look at, I mean, I'm a, I, I get pretty political. And as you guys know that know me well or listen to me preach more than once, I, I, I get into this stuff because it's like it's part of everyday life for us. I mean, we read it in the newspaper. We hear it on the radio. We, we, we see it outside and we see the, the evil that's just being perpetuated among our kids and the schools and on the billboards. And it's just pure, unadulterated, right in your face evil is what it is. That cannot be denied. It's, it's the goal is the, the goal of Target when you go in there to buy your whatever you buy there, which you shouldn't shop there, but if you do happen to go in there and the aisle is talking about this transgender and all this weird stuff out there that it's, that it's like trying to get our kids sucked into this belief, that's evil. I'm not saying that agape love is ignoring evil like it doesn't exist. That's not what Jesus is saying here. This isn't even my notes. I'm just getting a little bit fired up when I start thinking about this. But I look at who are our enemies? Like who? It's practical example. We say love our enemies. Who are our enemies? Is it the IRS agent? Huh? Target. He said it. Who are our enemies? The ones that are persecuting Christians and they're after us. They're constantly looking to destroy us. Is it the government official with power pursuing us unjustly? That's their job. That's their goal is to just make it hard on you. Let's go a step further. Is it the axe mur murderer? The enemy? Is it the pedophile? I mean, guys, stay with me here. I don't want you thinking like I'm, I'm saying that apathy to evil is what Jesus is talking about. Because I think the last thing that agape, the Christian love, is telling us is to allow evil to persist. I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying here. I think he, he's not saying that we need to leave evil unchecked or unpunished. I mean, no one would say to anybody, in fact, the Bible speaks against this, but if you don't, if your child is, is running up and down the aisle, smacking people on the back of the head with a Bible during the church service, and you did nothing to stop it, that they were doing evil, you did nothing to stop it, nobody in their right mind would say, wait, if, if Ridge is doing that along here, and I didn't handle it and have that conversation, no one would say, yeah, nature loves his kid. They wouldn't say that. Because the Bible says, he who withholds discipline hates his son. So discipline is part of love. And so agape love is not just apathy to evil. It's saying, let me read this because I don't want to get this wrong here. It's saying, love is that we will punish them. If we must restrain them, we restrain them. If we must discipline, we discipline. We must protect that person against themselves. But it will also mean that we do not punish him to satisfy our desire for revenge, but in order to make him a better man or a repentant man. It will always mean that all Christian discipline and all Christian punishment must be aimed not at vengeance, but at cure. We can see that in 2 Thessalonians. I read it last week. When someone is refusing to work, it says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Like you don't just leave it unchecked. What you do is you put it in check for the purpose of repentance. The purpose of our love is to get people to repent from the evil they commit. Some cannot and will not transform, but others may. And don't we win? Doesn't the world win if the evil man or woman changes their course of action? But when, I, when I think of people who have said, well, okay, well, what about, what about Adolf Hitler? Can you love Adolf Hitler? Can you love Osama bin Laden? You know what my response to that is? 
absolutely, 100%, yes. Because my goodwill for that evil human being is to repent. And if they repent, they will no longer do the evil they've been doing. Do I want the pedophile? Do I love the pedophile? Agape, yes. I want them to repent, to change, so they no longer do the evil. Now, does my spirit say, hang them in the gallows, in the public square? Yes, it does. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to sit up here and tell you that that doesn't go through my mind. There is a punishment that's needed to fit the crime, and God is going to deal with that. We see this in Romans chapter 12. And oftentimes, we as humans, we want to be the ones giving the vengeance. We want to be the ones that say, you know what, this person did this evil, therefore I'm going to take it into my own hands, and I'm going to deal with it. But in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, it says, starting in verse 18, If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We've got to understand, God's going to do His business. God's going to repay. The, he says it would be better for Him to have a millstone hung around His neck than to harm the little ones of mine. So believe me, God's going to do what God's going to do, and He's going to take vengeance. And there's a special place that He's created for evil people that do things that harm. I believe that's scriptural. I think it's in there. But in the form of the teaching that we see in the gospel, in Matthew chapter 5, is saying, pray for those people. Pray for the evil ones. Love them. Agape love them. Want them to change their ways so they no longer harm the people. I don't want that evil IRS agent to keep coming after me so I'm going to pray for them to repent and stop being such a bureaucrat. Because when they stop being such a bureaucrat, now they're not going to do what harms me and my family and those that we serve. Is that making sense? I don't think I'm speaking in circles here. I think that we can take the most vile, evil person in the world and pray for them and say, Lord, help them change their ways. Convict their heart. Recognize the evil actions that they do are going to take them to hell if they continue to do them and don't repent. Lead them to a life of repentance. And some people have a reprobate mind and they will never come back. And we have to accept that too. There are people that will never come to the light. And God will deal with that. He promises He will deal with that. Now, as we continue on in Matthew chapter 5, when He says in verse uh, 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So I don't lose the ladies here. That word sons, there's three ways the word sons is used in the New Testament. And one of the three ways is daughters, children, sons. This is a gender, I'm not getting target on you, I'm saying this is a gender neutral term. Okay? This is, this is sons and daughters. Okay, this is a gender-neutral term here when he's saying, so that anytime the, so that you may be sons of your Father. So do these things, love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you, so that you can be sons of your Father in heaven. Who does not want to be a son or daughter of the Father? Nobody. Everybody wants to be a son or a daughter. So Jesus is saying, do these things so that. And every time the Bible says, so that, my eyes just go, okay, and my mind goes, that's, I need to pay attention to what he just said. Like in 1 Peter chapter 2, and I think I have this later on in, in, my, in, the, in the message, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's saying you may grow up in your salvation by removing hypocrisy and deceit and envy and slander and malice. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. Because when you crave pure spiritual milk, you will grow up in your salvation. So this term, so that, is something that when we read that, we've got to look at what he just said and realize the importance of it. You have... You have what you reap and what you sow. When you, when you pray for those who persecute you or others that you love, 
when you wish them the best, when you wish that they repent of their sin, the Bible says you'll be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I've constantly had conversations with people that say, why do good things happen to bad people? And why do bad things happen to good people? Well, we may not want to hear it, but Solomon says time and chance happen to all. The sun rises and it warms the evil man's face. And the evil man that owns the crops, the waters fall on his crops and sometimes they grow. He makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and it is his sun, it is not our sun. And then finally in verse 47, or next in verse 46, or for, I'm sorry, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? He says in verse 47, what more are you doing than others? This is like, you consider yourself a Christian, right? I'm, I'm a Christian. I believe Jesus. I follow Jesus. I want to know what Jesus wants. And Jesus says, what more are you doing than others? This is where the rubber hits the road. This is the, this is the true Christianity. We are called by God to be different. We are called by God to be ambassadors. We are called by God to hold up a spotlight up looking at him. And so he's saying, oh, you're, you're treating people that love you well? Good for you. Golf clap. Nice job. How about treating people that are rotten? How about treating them with patience, with kindness. Guys, I'm not judging you. I'm sitting here like, if I had a mirror right here in front of me, I'd be pretty convicted. Because it's, it's you people cross your path every day that you want to smack sometimes. Or that you want to, I mean, you just, I mean, you just, they cross, you're so, you're evil. You are, you are pursuing the demise of our society. And you are, you are, you are, Physically, try. I have a black shirt, and it's one of my favorite shirts, and it says North Face on it right here. Does anybody want it? It's one of my favorite shirts. And at some point, you want it, you can have it. At some point, it's like, what am I going to stop buying or wearing because it's all around us? And I get so frustrated with the teaching that's out there that's just saying this is good and this is okay because everything that's evil out there is basically saying what God has made is a mistake. And I take that very personally because God saved my life. I was destined and bound for hell. And God said, son, I've got a better way for you. I, I want you to pursue this. And I, I love you so much that I sent my son on a cross to die for you. This, this, is, this is what I've got in store for you. And someone that loved me that much, for someone to say that they're wrong and they did it wrong, and then to think about they're talking about the... It's not like they're talking about my dad, my earthly father who makes mistakes. They're talking about the creator of the universe going, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. So it's easy for me to get worked up and get upset and call him names and whatever. Instead, Jesus is like, pray for him. So what does that do for me? That does a lot for my spiritual walk, doesn't it? It does a lot for my faith in him, saying God's got it figured out. He will repay. He will get vengeance. My job is to stand firm on truth and say, no, I'm not going to shop there. Well, why won't you shop there? Because they're perpetuating evil. They're forcing evil on people, and that's against God's will, and I am the son of a king, and so therefore I'm going to not support them financially. I'm not going to buy this brand of clothing. I'm not going to, you know... I'm not going to do these things because they go against what God advocates, what God has created. That doesn't mean I'm being evil towards them. It means 
I'm hoping to lead them, I'm, I'm hoping to lead them to repentance through my little action, which if enough people do it, maybe they will. Who knows? What are we doing more than others? We are called to be different, to be aliens and strangers, to have kingdom eyes. Again, it's a kingdom eyes and kingdom heart. And then finally in verse 48, this is where, am, am I making sense so far before we get to the conclusion here on what I think Jesus is calling us to? Like he's not calling us to just be weak, milk toast people that go, oh no, yeah, you, you, can, you can come into my house and worship the devil right in my kitchen with my kids here. It's okay, I don't want to judge you. That's not, that's not the type of God we serve. God's saying, don't even entertain the evil. Get it away. If it's wrong, it's evil, and I will deal with them. But pray that next time they come to your door, or pray when you think about them, that they repent from that wickedness which is going to land them in the fires. That's what God is saying. Pray for those who persecute you, because not only will it maybe reach them, but maybe it does something here for you as well. And then the whole passage gets summarized when he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now that's a tall order. Perfect. Be perfect. Never make mistakes. Is that what perfect means? I don't think so. The word perfect here in the Greek is teleos. And it means full-grown, mental and moral character you see this process in Christianity called sanctification. When I first became a Christian, I had a lot of sanctifying to do. Now I've been a Christian 20 years, I have a lot of sanctifying to do. But I have less sanctifying to do than I did 20 years ago. I still would say maybe I have just as much because more things are being revealed. But there are certain things that I struggled with 20 years ago when I became a Christian that I don't struggle with today. And 20 years from now, I can look back at today and go, I don't struggle with what I struggle with or struggled with 20 years ago. Is that making sense? That's the sanctification process. It's a step that we go through. It's a marathon that we go through throughout our walk with Jesus. And there's three passages. The first one is in 2 Peter. We're going to be towards the end of the Bible here, but in 2 Peter, or sorry, 1 Peter, I already read that. When he says, in the context of this passage in 2 Peter, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, So put away, this is written to the, the exiles, the elected exiles that were dispersed among the nations. And it says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. So he's giving them this process that they're growing up. I want you to crave pure spiritual milk so that you're growing up into the salvation that God has given you. And then if you flip a couple pages to 2 Peter chapter 1, for this very reason, to me, when he says for this very reason, it's the same thing as hearing so that. It's going back and... So I've got to go back now when he says in verse 3, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory or to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us, this is what he's granted to us, his precious and very great promises so that through them, through the precious and very great promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. You, you can become joint ventures of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. For this very reason, what very reason? The very reason that you have become partakers of the divine nature. You have escaped the world, and now you are joint venturing, you are partakers of of the divinity that God has, the divine nature of God, you are partakers in that. And it says, for this reason, make every effort to forgive your enemies. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Make every effort to add to your virtue 
knowledge, and knowledge self-control, and self-control steadfastness, and steadfastness godliness, and godliness brotherly affection, or brotherly love, and to, or brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Add to your qualities these things. And then he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, there's this sanctification, being Christ-like, praying for those who persecute you, praying for your enemies, loving your enemies, agape your enemies. And lastly, in James chapter 1, going back a couple of pages, in James chapter 1, I think there's this whole kind of a conclusion of these passages when he says in James chapter 1, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I can tell you, walking into the Mesa County Building Department or walking into a state office or walking into an IRS office, they um, are a testing of my faith. Walking into a Bureau of Land Management office to ask them for permission to build a road on my own property because I touched six inches of their property is a testing of my faith. Unless I just did it illegally, which maybe in 20 years I will, I will feel bad about it, but I don't right now. Just confessing. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Guys, when I see Matthew chapter 5 and I, and I read the words of Jesus and I read the Beatitudes and then I read the fact that we are the light and the salt and that I need to rid myself of anger and lust and I need to continue to work on my marriage and I need to let my yes be yes and my no be no and I need to not try and get my pound of flesh. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, love those that you hate. That's Christianity. And some of you may be trying to justify disobeying what this says. Yeah, but Jesus certainly didn't know about this evil person or what they did. Really? He didn't know about that? There was evil going on. I mean, if you go back and read the Old Testament and you saw... The, the murders that were happening and the death that was happening and the destruction that was happening, God has seen it all under the sun. He's witnessed it. He's seen it. He's experienced it. He's looked at it. He's watched it. He's wept over it. He knows. And so when he looks at these, when, he, when I look at these passages, that he's, the words that he spoke, and I go, I need to repent and I need to start having kingdom eyes. When somebody insults me, when somebody makes a comment for the purpose of insulting, for the purpose of making fun of me, for the purpose of making my day harder or my life harder, I need to say in my head, Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're under attack. Help them be less of a jerk. I think I'm okay with that. I'm okay saying that to God. Help them be less evil. Help them be less mean so they can experience the joy that we can have in Christ. I had a dream last night. I, it was several years ago. I had a, a couple people come into my life that really, very, very difficult people, especially him. I think she was a sweetheart. I think she just got sucked into his evilness. And uh, they, they, he attempted um, to make my life hard. It wasn't like, if I get an opportunity and I see that guy, I'm going to make life hard. That's not what it was. It was, I'm going to put myself in a position of authority that will allow me the opportunity to cost him money. That will allow me the opportunity to make him lose sleep. And I'm going to do it, and I'm going I'm to I'm put the chess pieces in place, and that's what I saw. And I had a dream about them last night. 
it was, I, it was wild. I'm sitting there, and in the dream, I, I won't get into too many details, because it was like I had a, there was a Navy SEAL guy there who was helping me out, and I mean, there was all, it, it, was, it was cool. It was a cool dream. But they're in this, we're in this room together, and we had, um, oh, I wrote it down because I didn't want to forget the word, uh, mediator. That's not a hard word. Uh, we're in mediation. And so I'm sitting across from these two, and the mediator's there, and we're going back and forth on what's the right way to handle it. And the guy is being a, just a doofus. He's being mean. He's being condescending. He's being rude. Even to the point in the dream, this is all a dream, his wife's like, hey, stop doing that. You're, you're being mean. And he's just, just tearing into me. And the mediator's like, yeah. So we get done. We come to a conclusion. Everybody's kind of walking away. And somebody mentions something, and he goes, yeah, I'm going to drive up in the hills, and I'm going to go show my uh, kids a bunch of, he's two kids, I'm going to show my kids a bunch of elk and stuff. And I go, you know, even though I, I love the man, uh, I, <laughs> you know, like, he's the enemy, he's my foe, I'm like, well, where are you going? You know, in the dream, I'm, he's, he brought up elk hunting, so I'm like, well, where are you going? He goes, well, I'm going to go up, and he tells me this region. And this is in the dream, again. He tells me this region that he's going to go to, and I know this region is just popular for flat tires. And I think in my, in my dream, I'm thinking, oh, he's going to get a flat tire. It's going to be cold. He's going to freeze. He might die. Oh, man, this is great. That's what I'm thinking in my dream. And then out loud I say, you know, if you go up on Glade Park and you head out towards the border, wintertime, those elk come off the top and they're in the fields and all the private property. You can show your kids plenty of elk. And I walked out of the room, stood up and walked out of the room. <laughs> I was like, I think God was showing me, here is an example of how you can return evil with good. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but return evil with good. And I know it's a t it took a dream for me to do it, because if it were to happen in real life, I'm like, no, go up there. It'll be great. Have a good time. I would like to think that I would say go up to Glade Park. But it's so easy to get caught up in our own worlds and not look at the eternal and not look at the big picture, not look at the long things of God. Instead, we look at the temporary. And God is working on our hearts. He's writing this to the world to read. But when we look at the gospel message and we look at the teachings in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, my, my hope and my prayer for you is that you start looking at them and going, man, Jesus is talking to me. Like he's, talk, he's talking to me. This is, I'm going I'm to apply this in my life this week. I'm going I'm to be better at this. And then one day, we'll be mature, we'll be complete, and we'll not lack anything. Next week, we're going to talk about giving to the needy. Um, it may surprise you, because I would imagine we're going to be, it'll probably be a couple of week message. We're, we're probably going to be talking about tithing and offering and money, because that'll come into this section. And most of you, I did, but most of you have probably grown up in a church body that talked about the tithe or the 10%. Um, we have a little offering box back there, and raise your hand if you've ever heard me preach on giving the tithe. Did I preach that you should give 10%? Shaking your head no. Okay. It may surprise you what I believe the Bible teaches about giving. So I, I'd like you to, hopefully you can be here, invite your friends, and there's a few churches in Valley that they say, yeah, we went to such and such church, and my first reaction is, did you bring your wallet? <laughs> Sometimes it's about the money. So God's kingdom is not about the money. It's about your heart. So that's what we'll be talking about over the next uh, couple weeks. Who has communion this morning? Dan? All right. God bless you guys. Have a good Memorial Day.